Please keep your Bibles open to Ephesians 4. And before I begin the message, I do want to thank all of you for your prayers for this past week as the uh, Northeast region of uh, Sovereign Grace Churches, all the elders, pastors from the churches got together for about 48 hours of conversation and discussion and teaching and encouragement and accountability and strengthening and envisioning. Uh, it was intense. These were like 15-hour days, uh, and it's been a full and, um, well, very full week. I mean, very full week. Uh, and I know that many of you were praying, and I believe that God answered those prayers directly and strongly uh, in both carrying us along throughout the week and in blessing and unifying and strengthening our vision. So thank you very much for, for your prayers. One, one of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia is the voyage is in the voyage of the dawn treader in the story there is a boy who is sadly named Eustace Eustace is a nasty kid a spoiled irritating willful selfish snob of a child who gets under everybody's skin and seems to enjoy doing it But in the story, his shenanigans and his mischief end up getting him into a bit of trouble. At one point, he is turned into a dragon, uh, an external form that is fitting for his internal character. This went on for a while until he had a life-changing experience, which he later recounts to another boy in the story. And this is what he says. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one strange thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it, and it led me a long way into the mountains, and there was always this moonlight over and around the lion, wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of this mountain, where there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe it, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me to undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said the words out loud or not. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming all off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. 
In a minute or two, I just stepped out of my skin. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well to bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. After I had tried this two more times, the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, and when he began pulling skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it was, it, after that, it was perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle on them and are pretty moldy compared to Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't know exactly how he did it, but he somehow or other did in new clothes. The same I've got on now, as a matter of fact, and then suddenly I was back here which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream. What do you think it was? I think you've seen Aswan. You ever feel like Eustace? You ever feel like all the self-peeling in the world doesn't change anything? When it comes to change, real change, deep change, lasting change, We cannot self-peel. You can't self-peel anger or malice or bitterness. You can't self-peel gossip and a lust for bad reports about others. You you cannot self-peel hatred of enemies or racism or prejudice or stereotypes. You you cannot self-peel lusts and impure desires and covetousness and greed. You cannot self-peel. We just can't do it. And so often cynics will say that people really can't change and they don't change. And in a sense, they're right. If, in fact, we are talking about self-peeling, we cannot peel off the bad. The bad goes too deep. The bad is too deeply embedded in who we are. But the cynic is wrong. People can change. 
Because God is in the business of changing people. Because God can peel. And God can change. You see, the passage that was just read by our brother in Ephesians 4 picks up on a truth that was mentioned back in chapter 2 and verse 10. Where we read, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Part of what it means to be in Christ, which is what Ephesians is all about, part of what it means to be in Christ is to be made a new creation in Christ, to be made the workmanship of Christ, to be recreated by Christ. And out of that new creation, there is a new life. Last week, we had the amazing joy of witnessing six baptisms. And each of these men and women were testifying by going down into the water that their old life had died, and by coming up out of the water, so far everyone we've baptized has come up out of the water as well. You'll be, if you're thinking about baptism and worried about that, we've never lost anyone yet. They've, they've, we've brought them all out. But it's a symbol, it's a, it's a picture of the newness of life that God has given to those who come to faith in Christ. Christianity is about a recreating work of God, a true raising of the dead, a true renewal of the mind and of the heart, and then a gradual but thorough and deep renovation, reformation, remaking of the life. It is the ultimate extreme makeover. It is what God does when he wants to do an extreme makeover on a human being. And chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians are meant to describe what this life is to look like. This, this is what happens. In, in chapters 1 through 3, we read about all that God has done for us and promised to us and given us in Christ. And now in chapters 4 through 6, we are learning how that applies and how that transforms how that remakes us into all that we were created to be. How change happens. Not self-peeling change, but God-wrought, God-done change in our lives. And here's from the text that's in front of us. Here's, here's what I think we need to see as we begin to make our way step by step through the last half of this letter. We who are in Christ, need to cooperate with the recreating work of God in our lives. There's my, there's my main point. We who are in Christ need to cooperate with the recreating work of God in our lives. And in order to see that, I just want to give you three main headings this morning. The, the authority behind this text then the people who are receiving this text, and then the imperatives that are in the text, and then hopefully a few thoughts just to apply it. So first of all, let's, let's make sure to, to notice the authority behind this text, or the authority giving this text. Notice verse 17. 
Now this I say, this is Paul writing, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This text opens up with a kind of solemn, weighty tone to it. Paul says, this I say, and I testify to it in the Lord. That means I solemnly swear, I am bearing witness before God, and I am testifying of what God has given to me. This is something I have received from the Lord. This is something I'm delivering to you. And if you're not familiar uh, with the text and what this means, I remind you that Paul uh, has reason to express such authority, such seriousness. I had a young person say to me recently that he really, really respects me and really, really loves me, but he could never do what I do. What do I do? You tell people what to do. I could never do that. See, he reads my preaching and my ministry of God's Word as me telling you what to do. And you know, I I get what he means. I, I, I understand that. He's got a point. Who am I to tell you what to do? I got no right. I got no I got no authority in me. There's no there's no special I got I got nothing. In myself, I got nothing. But Paul says, Paul says, I say it, I testify to it. Where did he get that clout? Where did he get that authority? Well, if you remember back in chapter 1, he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means I have seen Jesus with my own eyes, and Jesus has commissioned me and called me and given me authority to speak as an authoritative voice so that when I speak, I'm speaking the words of God, and you need to pay attention. And so, as we approach this text, Paul goes out of his way to assert a little bit of authority. Why? So that we will pay attention. So that we won't just treat this casually as if this is some suggestion from Tim Shorey or some suggestion from any old person. No, this, this comes to us from a man who has received it from Jesus. And so it's important. So that's the authority behind it. Now, let's notice the people who are receiving it. If you go down to verse 21 we see that the people that he's writing to, or verse 20, are people who have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. In the Greek language, Paul wrote in, the word about isn't in there. It's just assuming you have heard him and were taught in him. Who who received this? People who had learned Christ. I love that phrase. It learned Christ. It says something more than just learned about Christ or learned even from Christ. They had learned Christ. Christ had so impacted their life. Jesus had so affected them. His word, his will, his love, his grace, his cross, his resurrection had so affected them that they had learned Jesus. It learned Jesus, not just about him, but Jesus had impacted them. 
And so those who are receiving this charge, those who are receiving this authoritative word are people who were believers. They are people who had 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 come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They were, they were people who knew Jesus. And as you go back into chapter 3, well, you remember they were called saints, which means that they were the ones that God had set apart to be His. They were the called. They were the chosen. They were the ones uh, that had been forgiven and adopted and born again and remade. And, and so when Paul gives these words here in chapter 4 to put off the old self and put on the new, he's not talking about self-peeling here. He's talking of two people in whom the power of God was already there. They were born again, made alive, new creations in Christ. And as new creations in Christ, people that were in Jesus and Jesus was in them, he now gives this charge. These imperatives, two imperatives, put off the old self and put on the new. Put off the old self and put on the new. Put off the old. Look at verses 17 through 22. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles, you know, in the Bible, as we've said before, there's really only two kinds of people. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. Gentiles includes almost everyone in this room. Uh, We're all, we're just non-Jews. And that includes everybody, just about, right? And what he's saying here, often when it's used in the Bible, it's it's referring to the world out there. It's just referring to people in general. The world, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Down to verse 22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Have you noticed that there is such a thing as the old self? You that were just baptized, um, have you noticed that yet? There is an old self, you know, becoming a Christian, getting baptized, believing in Jesus, doesn't automatically and instantaneously change everything. There's an old self to do battle with. There's an old self that afflicts us and assails us and does warfare with the new self. And, and Paul says this old self is... It, it has certain characteristics. It's, it's futile and darkened in its thinking. It's ignorant. One of the things that marks human beings apart from the transforming grace of God uh, is just a whole lot of confusion. You know, kind of distorted thinking. Things that are wrong, they say are right. And things that are right, uh, seen as wrong. And... and and choices that are made that are obviously self-destructive and ruining just seem to make sense. It's 
futile in their thinking. We all have been there. Paul says in verse 18, they're, they're alienated from God. Alienated from the life of God. Is that there's a mindset in those that have not been born again. A mindset of hostility to God in His ways. They'd rather not have God around. We can remember that, can't we? Have I ever told you about the time Billy Graham went golfing? Did I tell you about this? There was, there was a time when Billy Graham was invited to participate in a foursome uh, golfing, and uh, I think one of the men was a vice president, and one of them was a professional golfer, and the Billy Graham, and I don't know who the fourth fourth guy was. So anyway, they go out and they do 18 rounds of golf, and, and uh, when they get back at the end of the round of golf, the professional golfer comes storming into the clubhouse and is just throwing his clubs around and he's furious and he's mad and, and uh, he, he just livid. And uh, somebody walks up to him and says, you had a bad round of golf, right? And, and the guy says, no, I don't need any preacher stuff and religion down my throat. And uh, the guy went out to the driving range, started pounding a bucket of balls and, and uh, friend came up to him and said, wow, Billy Graham was rough on you, huh? And he said, well, actually, he didn't say a word. <laughs> didn't say a word. What had happened? Sin gets uncomfortable when holiness is around. The world doesn't like to be in the presence of the holy. That's why people hated Jesus, even though he was the kindest, most compassionate, best person ever. They crucified him because they couldn't tolerate the holy. People are alienated from God. People don't want God around. That was me. I remember it as clearly as if it were yesterday. That was me. I didn't want anything to do with God. I was running as fast as the legs of my heart could take me away from God. I was futile in my thinking. I was alienated from God. Paul says, Unbelievers are hard and calloused in conscience. They not only do the wrong things, but they don't even feel that it's wrong. He talks, he says that they are greedy in their desires. Notice uh, in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. They've given themselves up to sensuality. That's, that's describing this, this all-out, all-in commitment to sensuality. They are greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. A heart that has not been born again by the grace of God is greedy for sin. It is hungry and thirsting and craving and greedy for impurity. It's not satisfied with just a little bit of sin. It's got to have a lot. It's not satisfied with yesterday's sin. It's got to be something different, something 
a little wilder, kinkier, stranger, bolder, stronger. It's kind of like the old advertisement for Lay's potato chips. Anyone else old enough to remember it? Bet you can't eat just one. Sin is that way. There's something built into sin that creates a craving for more. And that's why throughout this room, if we were to hear the stories, we've all got those things, don't we? We've all got those longings, those cravings, that, that greed, that, that lusting, that thirsting. That, you know, that's the old self. Even in us as believers, we still feel it, don't we? We still feel it. And all of this, Paul says in verse 22, is a corruption through deceitful desires. The old self does all this stuff and is deceived in the doing of it. Thinks it's right, thinks it's good, thinks it's cool, thinks it's healthy, thinks it's fun, thinks it's going to make me happy, thinks it's going to all work out, and then it kills us. It destroys us. And it ruins us. Sin always lies. Sin always lies. So the old self is that, that part of us that still thinks foolishly and darkly, runs and wants to hide from God, does wrong things, and then hardens the heart. It craves and pursues lusts and evil desires and actually believes the lie that it's okay to do all this stuff. That's the old self. And Paul says, put it off. Get rid of it. Don't go there. Don't indulge it. Don't live there any longer. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Now, remember, this is not self-feeling. Remember who he's talking to. He is talking to born again, made alive, new creations in Christ. He is talking to the people that he says in verse, in chapter 1, have the power that raised up Christ from the dead, seated him in the highest places, is making all his enemies his footstool. We have that power in us. He is talking to people who he says in chapter 3, uh, we cannot ask or imagine the things that God is able to do in us and for us. He is talking to empowered, able believers, made able by the grace of God. Not self-peeling. Not self-peeling. And yet, we who are in Christ need to cooperate with this recreating work of God. God's not going to do the work for you. What's Paul say? Put off. It means you've got to put it off. It means you have to obey. It means you have to make a commitment in your heart to put things to death. To say no to sin. Believe me, like with Eustace, as God peels, it's going to hurt. It's not going to feel good. But at the end of the day, your heart will overflow with joy. Put off, Paul says. And then he says, put on the new self. Put on the new self. Verses 23 and 24. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds 
to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness or more literally Paul wrote in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Righteousness and holiness that comes from and is produced by the truth. Paul describes the new self in three ways here. First of all, there's a renewed mind. Verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Christians are those who by the grace of God, the transforming grace of God, our, our, our eyes have been opened. We still have the old self and there's still darkness and there's still confusion, but we can now see certain things and we can now understand certain things. Our minds are, are remade and in a sense reborn. We are renewed in our minds and we are to be more and more renewed in our minds. And it is to be through the truth We need to be truth-loving people. By truth, Paul means the truth of God's Word, the truth of the Gospel, the truth of chapters 1 through 3. What are those truths? You've been chosen in Christ. You've been forgiven by Christ. You've been redeemed through the blood of Christ. The truths we sang about this morning. Paul said, be renewed by truth. You've been made alive. You who were dead in sins, you've been made alive. That's truth. The truth of chapter 2 where it says that we have Jew and Gentile, all ethnicities have been made one new man. Be renewed by that truth. The truth that end of chapter 3, God loves us with a love that is high and deep and broad. Wide. Surpassing knowledge. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul's Paul's concern here is about what we're thinking about. What do you think about? Throughout the week, what do you think about? What's on your mind? We say that sometimes to people, right? So what's on your mind? That'd be a great question for community groups. So what's on your mind? Do we, do we think on truth? Do we think on the Word? Do we think on the promises of God? Do we think on the blessings of the Gospel? Do we think about the character of God? Do we think about the law of God? Do we think about the unfolding plan of God? Paul says... To put on the new self is is to put on a renewed mind. Then secondly, a restored image. Verse 24. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God. All right, we're, we're about to step into the amazing here. We are are created as Christians after the likeness of God. What's Paul got in his mind here? Doesn't he have Genesis 1 in his mind? Remember when God first made Adam and Eve? God, God came down, God took some dirt and 
must have had some water mixed in with it, formed some mud, and with the mud he formed uh, a mud body for Adam and then breathed into him the breath of life. And with that, not only was there a new creation, but there was an image bearer of God. With the breathing in of the breath of God, there was the character and some of the majesty and dignity and authority of God breathed into that mud. And life was infused. And Adam stood up. And had there been other humans around right then, they would have said, oh, that looks a little bit like God. There's a reflection of God. And God has been making image bearers ever since. Side note, what are there, seven billion people in the world? Every one of which, in some measure, is an image bearer of God. It takes that many people to begin to reflect the image of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God. And it will take more. But the problem with most of those seven billion is that they have so marred and defaced the image of God with sin and self and lust and evil desires and wrong thinking and darkness and callousness of heart that you can barely see it. But what's God doing in us? He did it to Adam and Eve a long time ago. And he's doing it to us every time there's a new birth, every time there's a new believer. And with that breath of regenerating life, with that breath of saving life, recreating life, there is a human being who is now in a new way, in a more beautiful way, in a more glorious way, the likeness of God. And the whole process of what we call sanctification or or being transformed as Christians is to become more and more like God, to become more and more like Jesus. And we who are Christians, we, we, we are now able to live as we were intended to live in the first place. New hearts, new minds, new life. Renewed minds, restored image. We are reflections of the beauty of God. And Paul says, put that on. Put that on. And then he says, finally, this new self is marked by a righteous life. It says in verse 24, put on the new self, Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So the new self is is holy. The new self is righteous. And the rest of chapters 4 through 6 is going to tell us what that looks like. What is righteousness? What is holiness? Well, it tells the truth. It doesn't lie. It forgives rather than is bitter. It, is, it has a clean, wholesome, edifying tongue. It, 
It is grateful and respectful about human sexuality. It's not given over to sexual lust or crude and dirty joking. It is wise. It, is, it beats addictions. It, is, it worships. It, it re- shows respect to others. It honors marriage. It honors parenting. It honors parents. It, it does well in the workplace. These are all the things that chapters 4 through 6 are about. These are aspects of righteousness and holiness. And Paul is saying, put it all on. Put it all on. Paul is charging us, but charging us not to self-peeling or self-application. He is saying, put off and put on but put off and put on knowing that God is working in you with His almighty power. He will give you grace for it. Friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, God gives grace to change. You don't have to despair. You don't have to look in the mirror and say, it's never going to be different. It is going to be different. It is going to be different. It already is different. You can somehow remember what it looked like in the mirror two years ago or ten years ago. Then you'd realize God means what he says. (laughs) Because I'm not the man I once was. I'm not the man I'm going to be. But I'm not the man I once was. God is at work in us. This is what Paul means in Philippians When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to make you willing and able to do what pleases him. Work it out. Put it off and put it on. Do it. We must cooperate with God in this. But it is God who is at work in us. In us. So, as I close, just two quick words of encouragement. Number one, let us be renewing our minds. Let us be people here in Risen Hope who love the truth. We love the Word of God and all its truth. We love songs that teach us truth. We love books that teach us truth. There's a whole book nook in the back there full of books that teach us truth. That's what we call it, right? Book? Yeah, I got it right. Uh, let us love fellowship in which truth is shared. Let us be people who love the truth and are renewed by it. And let us also be people, there's a little secret here that God's Word teaches us. Let us be people who realize that the best way to put off is to put on. You, the best way to get rid of sin in your life is to put on holiness. You know the best way to get rid of gossip is to determine to be a positive, affirming, encouraging person. The best way to put off anger is to determine to be a kind and gentle and forgiving person. Somebody has called it the the expulsive power of a new affection. 
there is expulsive power. That means there is power to expel, to banish, to, to get junk out when you have a new affection, something that you're new that has taken over your heart. Like, you know, 38 or 9 years ago, nine, no, it's longer than that, whoa. <laughs> 41 years ago, the summer of 75, my heart was broken over a girl who didn't like me anymore. And I was whining and pining. And then Galene crossed my path. And a new affection took over. Never thought about the old one again. <laughs> the ex- <laughs> The expulsive power of a new affection. When we, when we long for and crave for that which is holy and good and Christ-like, and when we put it on consciously and deliberately, the, the scales and the old skin just begin to fall off of us. God peels off the old by, by washing us and changing us with the new. And so let us make that commitment, not just to renew our minds, but to put on Christ so that the old self will fall away. And if you're here this morning and you're listening to this and saying, oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. Because my life is just full of sin and I've been trying to change and and the longer I go the more guilty and ashamed I feel in fact I'm at the point where I'm ready to quit I don't know how many people through the years I've talked to who have been at that point they've tried so often to self-peel that they just gotten to a point where they said there's no point in even trying anymore and they despair are you here this morning somewhere near that You've been self-peeling for a long time and every time you try to dip your foot into the pool, you see the scales are still there. Every time you look in the mirror, you see you're still a dragon. Uh, The gospel's for you. Jesus died for those sins. Jesus took all the punishment for them. Jesus, Jesus paid the price. Jesus atones for them. Jesus... Jesus washes you clean. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Christ. And Jesus promises not just to pardon you, but to transform you. God, God's merciful hand will sink into your heart and into your mind and it will peel away, make you new. You say, I want that. Well, what you need to do, even in your seat right now, is just say, Lord, save me. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe Jesus rose from the dead 
Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is in the business of transforming lives. I want to be one of those lives. God, come into my life. Save me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I am broken. I need to be fixed. I am lost. I need to be found. I'm going to hell. I want to go to heaven. I'm without you. I'm alienated from you. I want you to be my God. I want you to be my Father. I want you to be my friend. I want you to change me. Pray that, and God is not reluctant or hesitant. He will swoop into your life with his love and with his transforming mercy. So now is the day of salvation. Now is God's offer of mercy. Receive him right now. Right now. Let's pray.